Welcome to Farm Focus, a podcast by the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau. My name is Bill Ziders. This week I spoke with Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture Russell Redding about high path avian influenza in the state. So, talking about high path avian influenza here with uh, Secretary of Ag Russell Redding. Um, so, it's been a month um, since the first case was announced. Um, so, where do we stand now? In Pennsylvania, yeah. So we're we're a month in um, you know, from the first positive. So we're in terms of total um, you know, flocks impacted twelve. Uh, we're north of four million birds that have been impacted. Uh, we are in two counties, so it's moved from Lancaster County uh, to Berks uh, on the domestic side. On the wilds, uh, we've got nine. Uh, uh, positives that are you know from Chester County to Franklin to Venango and Crawford um, that range from you know wild geese to a bald eagle. So uh, we have learned a lot in the last 30 days about high path AI and remain uh, on high alert um, because we've seen the devastation. Mm. Um, so we had the cases in Lancaster. We had the cases in. Berks. Is there any expectations of any more cases, you know, outside of those areas in in commercial? So the threat is always there. I mean, I would just say that that clearly, you know, was demonstrated by the move of the virus from uh, Lancaster to Berks, uh, and and we don't believe that there was any sort of assistance there, right, human or otherwise, uh, that it was, uh, you know, carried by wild birds. Um, uh, and with that, I mean, they can be anywhere, right? So I think that, to your point, uh, we would hope that it's contained to the two counties, but we've also recognized that given the concentration of poultry across the state, uh, is that it could go almost anywhere um, <clears throat> by itself. Right by by the birds just appearing or droppings appearing in those areas, um, and I keep underscoring in every conversation that biosecurity is critical. Right, we don't want any assistance there. It's already a threat enough by just you know, you know natural movement, if you will. Um, so we've got to be careful. Um, so the quarantine areas that are set up, what's involved in getting those areas set up? What does that entail, and what do they look like once they're set up? So, uh, if, if you look at the maps that we've produced, um, you know there are uh, there, there are several zones, right? There is a, a control zone, <clears throat> and there is a um, uh, a surveillance zone. And inside the control zone uh, would be the positive premise, uh, and then I think it's uh, 1.6 miles. Um, um, you know, a circle drawn around the positive, and then in the second ring, uh, that is the surveillance zone, goes out to 10K, which is about six miles. And inside the control zone uh, is, uh, you know, there's a permit required to go in and come out, poultry related, right? So poultry feed, all the service supply, any eggs leaving, any poultry and, and products leaving, all of that takes a permit out but also everything in to support that poultry industry is permitted in. And and, that's worked fairly well. That is a significant change from where we were in um, in 1983-84. It's a recent development with other states that we've adopted as a good practice. And I will tell you that it really 
been incredibly beneficial to um, control, which is what this is about, right? It's a control zone, so control the zone. And, and the second circle, uh, again, is, is surveillance. What does that mean? That means it's heavily surveilled. Uh, all of the testing, uh, there's active testing, there's an there's a intentional uh, additional testing that's done by uh, all of those flock operators, uh, additional surveillance that's done by uh, veterinarians and industry and labs. Um, so we, we put a pretty tight, you know, you know, control generally in into those two areas. But to back up, I mean, I think it's also important to know that there are also statewide quarantines, right? And that was a, that was a something we we've had in place for some time, um, but you know, activating those, restating those, reissuing those. Um, give you a case in point, just making sure that anything coming from out of state into Pennsylvania is, uh, you know, is adhering to um, the requirements that we have for a domestic industry and if they happen to be in uh, another state's positive area or control zone or surveillance zone, is that they have additional testing done to give us assurance. And it works the other way. So since this has happened to, in Pennsylvania, all of the other states that are receiving product out of two of the most heavily dense agricultural counties, Lancaster and Berks, but also poultry counties, they have the same expectation of us that we're testing and can give them the assurance. So statewide and then bringing it local into control and surveillance. Okay. And you mentioned um, 84, 85, the previous mm-hmm. outbreak we've had. Uh, you know, what are the kind of the differences you know, now from that one, um, you know, in terms of what we're doing, different practices, and, and is it, you know, I, I, most of us probably don't remember that, or mm-hmm. and some of us do, but, uh, you know, how, how have we improved since then, and how is this one different? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and one that, you know, as we were uh, beginning to respond to um, this most recent case, High Path AI, you know, we realize that there are a lot of folks who have no reference points when we say 83, 84, um, right? Just just way that's evolved, both a society and industry and those who are engaged in public service. Uh, um, but it was uh, important to state such because it's unrecognizable to what we had. You think about where the internet is and our ability to communicate. Communication in this whole, mm-hmm. you know, issue dynamic, um, both in terms of planning, uh, you know, response and recovery is about communication. But we had at that point, you know, in, in 83, 84, very, very little ability outside of a phone uh, and written communication. So communication has changed. Uh, we had no Animal Health and Diagnostic Commission when High Path AI uh, was was last in Pennsylvania a significant way. We had no paddles system, right? So the Pennsylvania Animal uh, Lab, the, the diagnostic lab system did not exist. We had a lab in, in Somerdale here in Harrisburg. We had a lab at Penn State that was not under the control of the Animal Health Diagnostic Commission. And we had one at New Bolton Center. Uh, without a lot of you know, depth in terms of subject matter experts in any of those places. So that has changed. You know, the uh, general biosecurity in the sense of, of, um, of biosecurity, this is a management principle. We have well-defined, um, you know, systems with our U.S. Department of Agriculture and our partners. We have an incident command structure. We have indemnification 
so you start making your list and you, you, you quickly turn the page right to all of these things that uh, we now take as um, normal <laughs> that weren't so, so weren't so much uh, normal at the mm -hmm. time but we've also had 38 years of experience mm -hmm. and investments right and the Animal Health Diagnostic Commission came about as a result of that high path AI incident when everybody said what do you mean we can't communicate with the other lab where is the lab sample and we couldn't have we'd have a tracking system wow. so that is just sort of elementary but at the time you know we were all uh, struggling with that and another important point is that the management principle on farm to uh, to once you're positive is to do composting on site don't put these birds in a dumpster don't take them to the landfill and run up and down the very populated roads uh, by farms that are in the same species as so that is a lesson learned so all of the farms that we're working with uh, there have been on farm composting uh, and the the science of composting has evolved so really important um, changes and, and I think uh, incredibly important um, in, in exhibiting both command and confidence in the state's ability, not just state, I would say the nation's ability to respond to high path AI. Okay. And, you know, since most of us don't remember how that outbreak went, it, you know, is this one going better compared to how that one went? you know, with all of these new techniques in place. Yeah, uh, and again, I, I think at the time, um, you know, it was just sort of a, a compounding of human error. Um, and not, not in an intentional way, not in an ignorant way, but just by, you know, what we thought was acceptable practice. And not surprisingly, I think when most folks have, you know, uh, this type of uh, uh, catastrophe happen on the farm you want to get rid of the problem as quick as you possibly can and that time meant getting those birds off your farm and to a landfill so uh, that, that that was just a principle and, and the compounding of not being able to communicate not having uh, uh, not having you know baseline surveillance testing which is another thing that we take for granted now um, you know, all of that was the context for when you look at today, uh, how are we doing? I think we're doing exceptionally well, right? Uh, it, yes, it's a problem. Yes, we're on 12 premises. Uh, but when you think about the hundreds of premises that are in these zones, as one example, in Lancaster County, when the first positive was identified, when we looked at the number of premises in Lancaster County, it's 1,766, right? Mm -hmm. We're on one. And that included both commercial and backyard, mm -hmm. but as we know, based on the, the wild um, uh, you know, positives that have been confirmed to wild birds with bald eagles and ducks, this is an avian. It is not commercial avian. Mm -hmm. And really right. important reminder to all of our backyard flocks is they have the same obligation and they have the same exposure as uh, commercial flocks. Yeah, and and that would lead into, you know, People with backyard flocks that may not even be paying attention to this, um, you know, what kind of message do you, you want or need to send to the to these folks, and what do they need to be doing? Yeah, so I, I think the uh, it's, it's important for them to recognize that as soon as you take sort of care and custody of uh, you know any animal, uh, you now are are obligated to 
right, uh, act in a certain way. That's my belief, right? Mm-hmm. Because you now have animal care. It's like, you know, your, your dogs and cats, there's an additional layer of concern that you have for their safety. And so I would say the same is true here for, for backyard flocks. I appreciate you have them. You clearly enjoy them. They bring a lot of, you know, pleasure. Uh, they, they could be, you know, economically important to you, nutritionally important, whatever. But with that uh, comes a significant uh, amount of exposure because this is, a, uh, it, it's a flu um, uh, transmitted by wild birds in the Mid-Atlantic Flyway. So anybody in Pennsylvania, the eastern seaboard is in that Mid-Atlantic Flyway. That their exposure uh, obviously is as great as anybody else. It's greater even if you're outside, right, in their free roam uh, and they have no cover from wild birds or wild bird droppings. So my ask of them is to please, particularly in areas of uh, high density um, agricultural poultry production, mm-hmm. is to recognize that you could have those birds exposed, which you would not want, uh, and they could be a potential um, source of and reservoir for um, this virus for the commercial poultry. Mm-hmm. And we have seen across the country, I mean, I think the the, uh, the the number is now north of 306 uh, flocks, I, I think, uh, is the number of total flocks. Half of those are sort of, you know, uh, backyard. Um, uh, yeah, 130, there's 176 are commercial flocks across the country. Uh, 130 of those are backyard flocks. So it can happen. So just ask it, be aware. There's really great materials online with Penn State Extension. Uh, and just give them some cover is, is probably the most important thing here. Okay. Uh, any other biosecurity, you know, best practices that you want to share, um, whether it's commercial or or backyard? Yeah, so uh, we'll take the commercial first. And, I, and again, I think this is a, uh, a contrast to the 83-84 era, but it's also an evolution of you know, good biosecurity, both planning and execution. And on the, um, you know, the, the, the fundamentals are still the fundamentals, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's really important to, um, if, if you're the farm operator, let's start there. If you're the farm operator, for good uh, on-farm um, hygiene practices, good you know, defined policies that anybody who enters that, that operation will understand you know, what and where the boundaries are. Uh, that they have a written plan right, to make sure that they have spelled out what the plan is. That includes things like um, you know, what, what type of logs do you keep, right? attendance logs or travel logs. What's the feed delivery schedules? Do you have an alternative route into the farm in the event that there's a, a high path of influenza on your farm? If you have a multiple enterprises, we have many of those in the state where they've got a poultry and a dairy and a hog, uh, making sure that the dairy and those other enterprises can continue to operate in the event that you have high path and you're quarantined. Uh, and basic question of where are you putting the compost pile? Right? We've had sure. instances even in the, in the 12 that we have where the parcel size is too small to actually do the uh, appropriate composting. That's a problem, right? So that means you've got to go somewhere, maybe to your neighbor, have you had that conversation? So some of the things seem simple, right, in terms of practice, uh, but are more complicated when you get down to actually executing those. Um, and to include things like, do you have a carbon source? 
Some of the farms have hay, some have access to sawdust, some have an access to mulch. That's not universal, by the way. Right? Depending on your enterprise and what else is on the farm, you may not have those other carbon sources. Carbon's critical to compost. That is sort of the producer piece. Um, and I would add one more thing based out of experience, uh, particularly with our last you know, case, is that the line of separation is critical. There's a defined line of separation between what is dirty and what is clean, and making sure that you honor that, and your employees and anybody who enters the farm honors that, because that's the discipline of keeping it you know, contained if there is a problem, but, but not introducing the problem if you don't have one, right? On the, uh, the backyard, uh, again, I think there's fundamentals. Uh, if you're handling those poultry you know, for any reason, please. Uh, you know, good hygiene would be important. If you're uh, around the, um, the the poultry, you know, probably not bad to have a, a second pair of shoes. Right? Mm-hmm. Don't track it into the house. Don't wear them to the convenience store. Don't go other places with, right, because it's part of the problem. It was an issue in the Midwest that they found that the problem was actually being spread by human uh, spread by testing at the local convenience store. And the foot traffic showed uh, avian influenza, right, being tracked around by people who, that's the clean and the dirty and the line of separation. But thinking about the safety of your family and thinking about the safety of the, uh, the poultry, uh, you think differently, right? But you've got to think in that separation. Both are important. Right. So um, I get a lot of questions about what are, what are consumers going to see as a result? of this, um, particularly in Pennsylvania, you know, when it comes to availability of eggs, meat, and and any effect it'll have on prices they're going to see. So, uh, you know, what do you have, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's complicated, right, because mm-hmm. it's not, there's not a, a direct correlation between what is playing out with high path AI and the price of or the availability of, right? Mm-hmm. We've all watched you know, with some angst, uh, you know, the inflation, supply chain issues, you know, trade uh, mm-hmm. considerations, a war, an unprovoked war, all of that is stock to a very complicated market, right? Both complicated for price, um, and I would say the same goes for the farmer, right, as it is for the mm-hmm. consumer. So no one's exempt from that. Uh, but there's not a, a, a direct correlation. Saying all that, you, we also know that uh, you can't pull you know, all of these birds out, all of these eggs out, and not expect that there's gonna be some effect, right? And, and we've had reports of you know, spot availability, spot price concerns. Um, so I, I would think that from the consumer standpoint, you know, knowing the food is safe, it'll be it'll be there, but it, you may have to be more patient, right? Um, but also understand that we're uh, we're dealing with an economic enterprise in the state with a lot of production here and processing and distribution here, uh, and there may be some you know challenges in that in that supply chain. Final point is, and again, in distinction between where we are in other states, uh, to my point earlier, we also have a significant production capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Unlike some other states that are simply waiting for the product to arrive, 
Here we've got it produced here. There's a lot of processing here. There's a lot of distribution here. So I think we're in a better place than many other states, but that doesn't mean it's going to be painless uh, when it comes to buying and, 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 and finding it necessarily in the supermarket. Sure. Uh, anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to discuss right now on, on this? So I think there's, uh, you know, from an agricultural standpoint, uh, the, um, the the response by the industry, by the USDA, by all of the extended partners at Penn State, College of Agricultural Sciences, and the University of Pennsylvania New Bolton Center, and the Department of Agriculture has been extraordinary. I mean, it, it is really comforting to see. You know, these are really well-defined and tested systems that we've spent a lot of time and money building. And we talk about during budget seasons, right, about the importance of. Um, but it's another to actually see them work. The synergy between and among uh, those partners, the respect between them, I think has really been uh, incredibly gratifying. And I think to anybody who's in the agricultural community, particularly in the poultry industry, can be comforted by the um, uh, the very talented uh, people who are entrusted with managing these issues, right? And they're from you know, the epidemiologist to your state veterinarian to the chief veterinarian. It's such a complicated issue right? because there's so many pieces inside that virus discussion. But just know that I think that's one for me, having watched this over the last 30 days, incredible lessons learned like we had in you know, previous experience in 83, 84, like we had during COVID, right? Every time you do something, there is a reaction to that, right? And I think that really has worked well. We've captured those lessons learned. The lab system has worked incredibly important uh, well. Uh, the USDA's participation in the incident command structure, I think has really been impressive. If you see that, where the USDA is embedded with the Department of Agriculture at the Department of Agriculture, right? Every single day, 7.30 to 7.30, 24-7 access, mm -hmm. um, monitoring, testing, real-time decisions. Uh, we have Pima, uh, who is embedded with us as well. So I think to say to all who are listening, just know that that system is really working as we envisioned it to work, and I think everybody would hope it would work. Uh, secondly, that the evolution of the Department, U.S. Department of Agriculture's support for the growers who are impacted, right? So, said before that the last time this happened, there wasn't an, an identification structure. There wasn't a clarity about who was actually paying for, you know, the initial cleanup. Uh, that is all well defined now, but it has its limits that what we now understand that the USDA can do certain things front side to help us plan and help respond. They can't do recovery. So in every one of these cases that we are dealing with right now, these families didn't ask for this. But they are now out of business, at least from an income from poultry enterprise, until the world changes. And the world changes once the virus mitigates and we can test a negative and get them back in business. And we all know that just from the date that someone can put poultry back into a building doesn't mean you generate income. Mm -hmm. That could be in a broiler you're some days and weeks, and if you're a laying flock, a year or more. So I, I know that that is a concern, and we are, we are addressing it real time with the governor and the legislature. 
about what the state can do to build that bridge from uh, where the USDA ends uh, and where we want their new uh, business to begin. That's a long bridge, but we're working real time to make sure that uh, we're you know, addressing those economic needs that these farms have. And secondly, as been pointed out numerous times, beginning with the farm operator, is the concern for the employees in these operations. Is that they're very skilled, very loyal, but very, very in demand. Right? So concern is if we don't address their needs, uh, they will be going up the street somewhere, right, or across town, um, and go to work, and they may not come back. So that is a concern for us. So we're working uh, as we speak on some type of, of response package to address both the grower needs and the needs of uh, the, the worker as well. And final point on that is we also recognize that you'd ask earlier about differences. We also know we don't have enough subject matter experts. That's one of the things that came out pretty clearly. So we have been in discussions with both University of Pennsylvania and Penn State on uh, the availability of and both immediately but also longer term planning for building the capacity of subject matter experts at both Penn and Penn State. That's a really important part. You said some of these farms may not be able to get back into operation for up to a year. Beyond sort of that direct impact, uh, do we see an end to like when we can uh, see an end to detections of the virus, mm-hmm. new detections? So two things. One, just to the point of um, when a business could come back into business, right? So I think the the obvious ones are uh, inside the control zone where the, uh, the the initial premise that was positive, they're the directly impacted. Uh, and then you've got some others inside the control zone that are collateral damage. Now, because of their marketing cycle, they may not be positive, but the birds may have been marketed out, right, uh, on, on cycle. Uh, or just the flock, if you're laying flock, may have matured out. Uh, the way the control zone works is you cannot repopulate on uh, any of those farms until the initial uh, premise that was positive is negative, tested negative. And I think that's one of the realizations that folks are now having. Like when you start drawing, you know, these circles, there's a whole lot of flocks that are inside that may find themselves in the same position, right, of being without a paycheck just because of proximity. So that's one of the concerns we have. We're trying to be sensitive to both the positive and the collateral. Uh, so so that is, um, uh, that, that's important. So if you talk to the veterinarians, they believe, uh, and I'll just you know, specifically be uh, both USDA lead vet and PDA lead vet, is they believe that, uh, that this virus will, will remain in circulation for 12 to 18 months. Okay, so for reference, I mean, let's assume this started the 1st of January of 2022. So you can see, you know, the time horizon here. Uh, But during that time, there would be some peaks and valleys based on migration pattern, of course, uh, and uh, heat sensitivity. So, right, if it warms up, it gets warm, the vets will tell you there's a diminished um, uh, potential for um, high path AI. So 
what's that mean? We're now heading in you know, mid mid May, mm-hmm. so let's hope that's true. Uh, as we get into the warmer climates of June, July, that this should diminish. But again, going back to seventh grade science, right? That migration will uh, be reversed in in the fall winter, right. so it may come back at us. That's the other element that we're taking into in consideration in terms of the state's response plan. We want to be prepared for that. Uh, and that brings up just a question. So the, the virus then just sort of, I mean, is it a yearly thing? Is it a, or, you know, does it come up every, you know, is there some kind of cycle to the virus itself? So there's a, it's, it's like all virus, they're dynamic, right? I think in this case, the combination of uh, the, the, uh, the H, the proteins of H and, and N, the combination of and and the um, the pathogenicity of that virus, uh, the combination here of the H5N1 uh, and 7 uh, coupled with the Eurasian strain of this makes it particularly pathogenic. You could have that combination and not have the same level of pathogenicity. So in this case, again, Dr. Breitman would say that uh, this has been a virus that has been refining itself to be more pathogenic over the last several years. It's been in circulation. It, it hasn't been until recently as pathogenic as, as it, it now is appearing and exposing the world to. So it could change again, is my point. It could, it could mutate and come back down as stronger or weaker. Uh, or you could have a whole completely new strain circulating. That, that's been our problem. The testing, and this is a, a great point, that the testing both that the USDA Wildlife Services does uh, is much like what we do in our poultry houses. It's one of the outcomes of 83-84 uh, experience is that you, you need a baseline of uh, health for every flock, right? Uh, we do that, uh, so we know if there's a deviation from that, that something's wrong. And that's the first indicator of whether you've got the high path AI. It then puts both the owner and, and everybody else sort of on notice that there, there's an alert here, right? Something's wrong. The same is true with the USDA Wildlife Service is that they watch this deviation, what they do in terms of, you know, the global testing of all of these different pathways. So they know, right, that what is in circulation and a deviation from normal. It sounds odd, right? It sounds like common sense. But again, that's not the way this was always done. So you have a baseline at farm. We have a baseline at the state. We do 200,000 tests a year. We have a pretty good sense of what's normal. And the USDA Wildlife Service does the same thing for our you know, um, you know, national flock, if you will. Mm. Yeah. Is it just kind of the luck of the draw, I guess, that we haven't had one since the 80s and that we have one now? Is it some other factor? I mean, you know, it's just that. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a, again a combination of things. So, um, you know, we, we, there have been any number of high path AI experiences across the country. Uh, most recently, and most significantly, economic dev- uh, devastation occurred in fourteen fifteen in the Midwest. Right, that operation. I say operation because you know, USDA responded. Um, that that cost a billion dollars in response. That was 1450. We were just lucky, 
that it wasn't Pennsylvania. It could have just easily been Pennsylvania. That strain at the time was in that mid-Atlantic, or not the mid-Atlantic, the, the mid, um, the central Mississippi flyway uh, is where that was circulating. There's been some in the south, there's been some in the west, there's been Canada, there's been around the world. So yeah, it's a little bit of, of luck in it, but I like to believe that it's also, you know, the systems that we've built for monitoring and biosecurity and industry, full credit to industry. Uh, but it also has a lot to do with the pathogenicity of that particular strain. Um, so uh, where should people go if they want more information? Yeah, so the best thing to do, uh, again, you can go to Penn State Cooperative Extension, and, and most are familiar with, with that link. There's great material there. Uh, we have on the PDA website, PDA Department of Agriculture, um, there's a, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of good resources there. If they are, you know, seeing any type of uh, issue in terms of, of uh, the flock, if they're a backyard owner, if you're the flock owner, you know, making sure that you contact the department immediately uh, by calling 717-772-2852 uh, and press the option one to reach the veterinarian that's on call. That's staff 24-7. Really important because folks have seen things, they've witnessed it, they've called, and it's worked. Uh, if, a, if you're looking for general knowledge information, Penn State Cooperative Extension Resources, PDA uh, for general resources. Okay. Secretary Russell Redding, thank you for thank taking the time to speak with us today, and we appreciate all your work on this on this issue. Pleasure's mine, and just a note of thanks to the Farm Bureau and, and your members and folks who are, uh, you know, involved in so many ways, right, both in terms of uh, owners of these farms and, and managing with us and, and helping us navigate as a state. Uh, our response and recovery, but also the voice you know, the Farm Bureau brings to the table in conversations about you know, how we do what we do, uh, explaining to the public food prices and implications and environmental concerns and animal welfare, uh, but also with our state legislature, right? Really important time. You know, seasons are important to ag. We're in one of those seasons, right? This is budget season. And making sure that we make clear that if, if we want to be prepared, uh, we need to have a state response uh, that responds to, you know, uh, the, the challenge that we have, but also we want to get these businesses back in business, uh, and that's going to take some state resources. So helping to advocate for that uh, is always appreciated, but thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Farm Focus, please subscribe. More episodes are on the way, and all of our past episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on Podbean at pfbcast.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.